0: Happy 2020. This is going to be a monster political year. An Honorable Profession is here to highlight some amazing leaders that might not be on the presidential debate stage yet, but are worth knowing if you want to understand the present and future state of American politics. Thanks for listening. An Honorable Profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities big and small across this nation. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An honorable profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that identifies rising stars in the Democratic Party at the state and local level. I've been fortunate enough to be a New Dealer for years, first when I was mayor of Santa Cruz, and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. We've been doing this podcast for a year now, and I encourage you to check out some of our previous episodes with great leaders like Mayor Pete, Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford, and candidate for U.S. Senate in Texas, Amanda Edwards. We're only weeks away from the first presidential primaries. What better way to know how things are playing out on the ground than by talking to leaders from those states? They know what it takes to get elected in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. And after listening, I think you will too. So today, I talk with Iowa State Senator Liz Mathis, New Hampshire State Senator John Morgan, and Nevada Assembly Member Danielle Monroe Moreno. These are three amazing leaders who are accomplishing great things in their states, and they're on every call list for every candidate for president. Here's our discussion. Enjoy. Enjoy. The reason I started an honorable profession was because I came to New Deal conferences and I'd hear about the amazing work that all you are doing and then I'd go back home and everyone's like, "Ah, oh, politics sucks and politicians suck and nothing's getting done. And the disconnect was so large uh, that I felt like I had to change the conversation and we started the podcast. And I, let me just say we were a year into it and of uh, so many of you I've talked to, and I hear every day about people being inspired to elective office, people engaging in new ways. Um, and the real thing I wanna do is one, highlight all of you and the great, your great leadership, and two, give people perspective on issues they wouldn't otherwise hear. And I think this is a great opportunity. All of us are sort of reading all the articles about the primary states, but to actually hear from people who've been elected and are on the ground, to understand what's going on in those states is a really unique opportunity. So today's uh, episode and uh, today's event, we are getting a view from the early primary states. Uh, We have Iowa Senator Liz Mathis, we have uh, Senator John Morgan from New Hampshire, and we have Nevada Assemblymember Danielle Monroe Moreno. And let me just say, I've had more people stop me in the street and at this conference Saying that the podcast interview with Danielle was powerful um, in a in a really amazing way. When we talked, um, it got you know personal and really connected to the public service. And uh, I, I think people are running for office now because of uh, because of that conversation. Uh, so I want to start with a view from the ground. Uh, we'll go in order of uh, the the primaries and caucuses. Um, I'm gonna try to keep, it's good that Nevada is sitting between New Hampshire and <laughs> Iowa so I can, we don't have to have that dispute. Um, but uh, Senator Mathis from Iowa, what are you seeing on the ground uh, as, as the primaries get, or and the caucuses get closer?
1: Well, we joke that our presidential election in Iowa is every two years, not every four years, because we've had candidates uh, come as early as one month after the inauguration to start you know, uh, campaigning. So, so it is a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that um, we, uh, we have the ear of the candidate. The curse is that we have the ear of the candidate. And so um, we've been criticized as of late of why is Iowa first, you're always first, since 1972, why are you first? Well, there are reasons why. Politically, you know, political jockeying to get that. Dave Nagel, who was uh, one of our congressmen uh, years ago, was really fighting to keep it first, and he did. Retail politics at its best. We know the demographics do not reflect the rest of the country, but they do reflect the Midwest. They reflect rural areas, and, um, and the positives of starting the caucuses in Iowa are, primarily about smaller groups, about being able to relate to the rural population, and about expenses. So TV time in Iowa is a lot less expensive than TV time in Chicago or New York. So it allows for a candidate to emerge, to really get on the ground, meet people, hear what the topics are, which we'll get into that, I'm sure, but um, it gives them a chance to make some mistakes early and still survive.
0: New Hampshire, Senator Morgan.
2: Uh, actually there are a lot of similarities between, I, I got a chance to go to Cedar Rapids for um, one of, the, one of the, the big events and I was struck by the number of similarities between, um, between our two states and the two contests that are happening in parallel. Um, you know, for me, the importance of the New Hampshire primary back in 1996, Uh, I was in middle school, I won't let you, I won't have you do the math there, but I was in middle school. And Bill Clinton is the president, so it's the Republican primaries is ongoing. My mother took me around to all of the events, and I got a chance to meet each and every one of the candidates, um, as well as the president when he was there. And uh, that was just such a phenomenal experience, I ended up, I was, you know, I was struck with the bug. now, I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, and I'm getting to do that same thing at my seven-year-old's request. He's, you know, how many seven-year-olds in the country get a chance to meet, shake hands with, have conversations with um, all of the, the candidates. So that's been incredibly special. One of the, the, to answer your question, one of the things that we have been doing, my um, my seven-year-old and I have been knocking doors together and getting... Uh, in my district, just to give you a little bit of a, a lay of the land, uh, I have nine towns. Donald Trump won eight of those nine towns. Um, so it's, uh, there's some variability there in, in my district. Um, but one of the things that – there are two things that I'll really share with you. Number one is I think that people are kind of overwhelmed in New Hampshire. They haven't really been able to make up their mind or, or sort through a lot of the noise that they've been hearing. And the other thing that um, is really interesting that i found is they're really oversaturated with political news, just just in constant inundation, and I think that that has made it so that they're not really able to listen to, get into the, the issues that most of us in this room are probably following very closely, so.
0: Can I ask just a follow-up, so does that mean that whoever wins Iowa will be, will have an advantage because it sort of simplifies things coming into New Hampshire or is that, is New Hampshire really gonna say, no, now it's, Iowa had to say, now it's our turn and we're gonna look at it really differently.
2: From my biased perspective, I don't think that we're gonna pay too much attention to what happens in Iowa. Well, the contests are so close together. um, They're happening in parallel and basically, I mean, they might as well just charter flights between you know, uh, between Iowa and, and New Hampshire, um, and they do. Yeah, a good point. Um, but that's, uh, I, don't think that, I don't think that there's going to be too much of an impact in New Hampshire, but I think that whatever happens in both states probably will pick up several news cycles.
0: This conversation took place at the annual conference for New Deal, which is fitting because an honorable profession is a New Deal Leaders Podcast. The New Deal is an organization that identifies the rising stars in the Democratic Party at the state and local level. I've been fortunate enough to be a new dealer for years. First when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. We've been doing this podcast for a year, and I encourage you to check out some of our previous episodes with great leaders like Mayor Pete, Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford, and candidate for U.S. Senate in Texas, Amanda Edwards. And as always, please tell your friends about An Honorable Profession and raise us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now, back to the panel. Assemblymember Monroe Moreno, when we head out west, what do, we, what, do we, what do we see out there in that early primary?
3: Well, much like what you said, um, we see the candidates early on. Um, but the good thing is there are two races ahead of us. Um, to, but what it's done is we talked about, the, ear- the earlier panel talked about voter engagement. And being the first in the west, and we have candidates that have been coming for a year now, has helped us keep our voters engaged on other issues, not just presidential issues. So you can you have that presidential candidate that's coming to your state, but that gives our nonprofits and those community organizations an opportunity to get their word out as well. Um, if you just look at the, the debates, candidates get those little seconds to share what their ideas are or their perspective on something. Being one of the early caucus states and because they're there so often, they're in people's homes having coffee and conversations, they're at at town hall meetings with other elected officials, it gives our our constituents a chance to actually find out who that candidate truly is and if they represent them. And then the other thing is, we are seeing so many new people being part of the, the process. At our pride parade, all of the candidates, presidential candidates that came out and were involved had over 50 people marching with them. And they were new faces. They weren't the same people you've seen over and over again. Last Sunday night, we had, every presidential candidate in Las Vegas for our first in the West dinner. But it couldn't be a dinner because there were so many people that wanted to be there. So they had to take the tables out and just had chairs. And we were there from 5.15 to 10.15 listening to the candidates speak. And the room was filled by our diverse group of citizens in Las Vegas. But we had people from the rules and Northern Nevada come there to hear what those candidates have to say. So it's energizing the voter base.
0: This conversation took place at the annual conference for New Deal, which is fitting because an honorable profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that identifies the rising stars in the Democratic Party at the state and local level. I've been fortunate enough to be a New Dealer for years. First, when I was mayor of Santa Cruz, now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. We've been doing this podcast for a year, and I encourage you to check out some of our previous episodes with great leaders like Mayor Pete, Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford, and candidate for U.S. Senate in Texas, Amanda Edwards. And as always, please tell your friends about An Honorable Profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen. Now, back to the panel. Senator Mathis, what are the issues or what are the, what's animating the debate uh, among your constituents when they're trying to sort through this big field of candidates
1: i'd say th- the issue used to be in iowa education was number 1 now it is healthcare so for example a couple of years ago as i was knocking on doors we you know on the mini van you can use the app and you can put ip issues in there and i would turn to the person at the door and say out of all of these issues which one do you talk about most in your home and for whatever reason, you know, they would say what, whatever reason it was. Well, a couple of years ago when I did that, 50 doors in a row, health care, 50 doors. And it was not, um, you know, it was a young family, it was elderly, but it was health care, in one form or another. So whether it was Medicaid or the high cost of prescription drugs, or costs of premiums or the marketplace or the ACA or Medicare for all, it was about healthcare. And so the presidential candidates, at least in Iowa, have really picked that up. And so that is a hot topic no matter where they go. And everybody watches them like a hawk to see if they've backed up from what their original uh, reasoning was around Medicare for all or um, Medicaid expansion. And so I would say that's, that's the number one issue. A second issue. Can I just ask real
0: briefly? So, oh. is the the Democratic field's focus on health care helping or hurting, or a little bit of both among those uh, among those voters who are concerned about it?
1: Well, it depends on who you ask. So, um, I'd say with the base, the base has really been pushing Medicare for all. But there's an emerging force right now. I think Pete Buttigieg. Um, and Amy Klobuchar have been talking about uh, public option. And that's getting more press, and more people are now saying, yeah, I, I was, I'm, not un- I'm not comfortable with Medicare for all, so yeah, this is what I wanted. So now there's a pushback on it, and you've seen that Elizabeth Warren has been kind of pushed on that. And so then that's reflective on then what happens in New Hampshire, and then what happens in Nevada. So um, that's an answer to your question.
0: What's going on in New Hampshire?
2: Not dissimilar. Healthcare is is incredibly important. I think that the dialogue uh, of the the candidates has has really kind of pushed that to the forefront. But it, in a couple of different contexts, and more specifically in New Hampshire, we've been really uh, hit disproportionately hard by the opioid epidemic. In New Hampshire, and that was that's been something that continues to be on the front of, of many folks' mind um, minds, particularly in my neck of the woods um, and kind of midway up the state as well. Um, mental health has been something that, uh, and access to to care has been something that's been critical. And in in New Hampshire, just like in many parts of the country, you know, down the southern tier of the state, it's Relatively easy to access those services, but if you go up north to where all the um, the, the old mill towns are, et cetera, those parts of the state are really struggling. Um, I mean, just to get the the basic care that they need, there aren't dentists, you know, uh, available to um, for kids to go uh, and and just get their their annual checkups. So that's been. Those are some of the issues that um, that folks are facing. New Hampshire, uh, every single time we have an election, it's, all, it's always about property taxes for us. And so I think one of the things that uh, New Hampshire voters want the presidential candidates to understand um, are uh, the intricacies of the New Hampshire system where we don't have a sales tax, we don't have an income tax, property tax is very tied to education. And when you're the second oldest state in the nation and the most rapidly aging state in the nation, um, the, the, you know, the affordability of, of your prescription medication and your housing are really critical issues for folks.
1: If I might add, just yeah. dovetailing on that, the, the second issue that, that does segue is rural concerns. So 20% of America lives in rural areas. But sometimes if you live in an urban area, you forget about that. If you live inside the Beltway, you forget about that. So so the issue has been rural hospitals closing, uh, lack of physicians wanting to live and work in rural areas. Um, no longer are the candidates, um, uh, you know appearing on tractors and behind hay bales. They're really, uh, I think this, this cycle, they're really talking to farmers at a level where you own a business, or if, if, if it's a large farm, you own a corporation, <laughs> you know? And they're starting to understand the ethanol uh, problems with, the, with waivers and refineries. They're starting to understand how that affects education in rural areas. Trump won in rural areas that Obama won in so we are definitely a perennial swing state. But the presidential candidates need to identify how rural America is gonna come back or how it's going to be stronger. And there's and Iowa is a good place to do that.
2: Uh, and you said 20% of, of the electorate are in rural areas and, that, and that's true, but it's, it's more significant um, in terms of the electoral power that they wield. And so I think that that's something that's really important to take into consideration.
0: Absolutely. What's going on in Nevada?
3: So a lot of the same. Um, When we did our polling, healthcare is at the top of the, the ticket on what's important to people. And you said, are the presidential candidates, are the words that they're saying benefiting us or not? And it depends on what community that you're in. I say the vast majority of our our citizens want a medical plan that everyone can have access to, but is that Medicare for all? Um, And if you have a private plan, they want to be able to keep that private plan. But the candidates, like in the other states, our rural voters are, are highly important and they want to have their voices heard. And so we have been encouraging the candidates, when you come to Nevada, don't just go to Las Vegas. I mean, we have you know two million people there, yes. But you have to go into those rural communities so that they feel engaged because the largest growing political group in our state are independent voters. And in some of our districts, the independent voters now outnumber the Republican voters. So those people are, some of them are Democrats, some of them were former Republicans, but you have to engage them and reach them. Don't just come to our state and talk to those Democratic voters. You have to talk to everyone. You have to talk to them.
0: Just a quick break to tell you that if you like an honorable profession, I encourage you to check out another great podcast that's out to give you hope in an awful and hopeless world. Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Each episode, my friend Spencer Critchley talks to people who are making tremendous positive impacts on our world. Their conversations are funny, engaging, and hopeful. Listen to Dastardly Cleverness wherever you listen. Now back to our show. All your states get a lot of attention as Democratic primary states, but they are also swing states that have to be won. Um, and that's a different electorate, right? And so what, what does that look like once... Once we get through this Scrum and a candidate emerges, you know what? What do your states look like for in the in the in the general election against President Trump? Do you want to start uh, start with Nevada and work our way backwards?
3: <laughs> well, that's one of the things that I'm kind of fearful of. Um, Democrats, we kind of eat our own, and that's I don't know any nicer way to say that. If our candidate doesn't win, then we're against whoever the winner was, and we have to end that thought process. Whoever wins the state of Nevada in in this caucus, as a state, we have to come together as a Democratic Party, and then we have to support that candidate. We did not do that in the last election. Although Hillary won, we went blue in the state of Nevada, and Hillary won our state there was still that tension between the Hillary and the Bernie people, and we have been working extremely hard to make sure that the Democratic family stays a family after that election, but what we're also doing is creating events, um, like I've done, I have this sisterhood happy hour, where I invite every woman especially my Republican women who voted for me, to come out and talk and get to know each other on a non-political kind of political thing and make them feel part of our you know, distant relatives so that when we get to that general election that they're willing to cross that aisle and vote for us. There were homes in my district that had a Trump sign, had my yard sign, and my county commissioner who was also a Democrat. Um, Weird thing to see, but we know we can get those people. So working hard to create events and, and community activities that they feel welcomed at, so after we get through the primary side, the caucus side, that they feel welcomed, because I hear it from a lot of people, the Republican party left me, um, I've heard it from donors that I normally donate to Republicans, but I'm looking at the candidates themselves and where they stand, and I'm now going to put my dollars there.
0: Dear. What's going on in New Hampshire in the general election?
2: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. And I think that anyone who, in New Hampshire anyway, anyone who tells you that they do, I, I think they're just making it up. Um, so I knocked... In the last election, I knocked about 6,000 doors, and the vast majority of those were in those eight other towns uh, that, that Donald Trump won. Um, and we didn't win by a lot, but we had a lot of the conversations that turned into having you know, a, a Morgan Trump sign in the front lawn, which we celebrated every single time, it obviously. Is. I've heard a lot up in the State House from my Republican friends, um, literally, I've, I've heard the phrase "I don't know what the hell is going on with my party" so many times. Um, which every time I, I kind of raise my eye, eyebrows and say, "Okay, I appreciate that you're telling me that, but yeah. you know, let's have that conversation publicly." Um, and obviously, they're not really interested in uh, in doing that when when i do talk to constituents you know we're in new hampshire right i mean just picture we're the one that points up for those of you who don't know um but we're the one we're, we're thousands of miles away from the border i can't tell you the number of times i had to have the conversation about the border wall in the last election and um and so i'm not sure what's going to happen with this time around i'm i'm fascinated um to, to get out to the doors and have those conversations again and see, you know, how, has the move, needle moved at all uh, in the last couple of years? Have the impeachment hearings and the Mueller report and all this stuff, um, all, all of Trump's cabinet officials who have stepped down and come out against him, you know, has, that, has that convinced people? I don't know, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. Thank you for that terrifying
3: answer. But one other thing, I think that we have a responsibility as state legislators, as elected officials. If we show that we can work across the aisles and have friends across the aisles, that goes a long way in the communities that we represent. There are issues, especially clean energy in our state, where my Republican colleagues have come to the middle and we found middle ground to build on. And we're doing events together to carry that message. I think that will carry a lot when it comes to the primary. At least that will help influence it. At least that's my hope and prayers. Okay, in
1: so, Iowa. so the base says, more people come up to me and say, who can beat Trump? but the independents say who can move the country forward. So you've gotta get a candidate who's gonna do both those things. And so as you're looking down the line, that's the selection you know, that, that you have to do. So listening to those debates last night, you know, I, I kept thinking, all right, how, how do I answer that to the people in our base and then to the independents who are going to vote, they do, in Iowa we have more independents than we do Republicans and Democrats, and that's why we're swing. But um, you know, it's those two things that keep coming up. Um, again, you know, we voted Obama in. And I can remember, I, I was a reporter for 27 years, and I can remember covering a lot of caucuses, but, but that was the first caucus that I got to participate in as a non-reporter, and, and it was Clinton, biden edwards and we were in this room at this bank and i thought all right you know the, here are the three groups and here in walks all of the obama people they had met beforehand at someone's home and then all gathered and drove there together person after person after person walked and this was a, uh, I'm from a, it used to be a Republican district, now it's a Democratic district, we pulled it over. So, so at that time, it was a Republican area and he won that caucus. And I, I, it, that night I just said, all right, it's changing, there's something going on here. And you know, it was, again, first in the nation, but we saw really him start to succeed at a very initial level as he was, swinging some counties from red to blue, and he did a great job in Iowa, so.
0: So my last question here before we go to questions from the audience is, so all of us have fast-growing independent or declined to state, it's the fastest growing political party in California. How's the Democratic Party brand uh, both among the the base among the party members, but then also among this decline to state as a whole, is it separate, separated from whoever the nominee is, or is it just gonna be defined by the nominee going forward? Whoever wants to jump in.
2: Without getting into the specifics about how I feel about this, um, it, whoever the nominee is is going to be tied very closely to the party um, in, my, in my area.
1: Well, as much as the Iowa Democratic Party tries to stay neutral at the top, Troy Price is an excellent leader for our state, and he tries to stay neutral. Um, the, you know, the party philosophy will be very closely tied to the person who wins. I believe anyway, that's, that's what I'm hearing. That's what I see.
3: I think the person that, that wins has to fit the state of Nevada. Instead of the state of Nevada fitting the person that wins, we are, are primarily a majority um, minority community. Um, we're 28% um, Latina uh, Latino and 9% African American, 9% Asian Pacific Islanders. We have a growing African community within our state. We are one of the most diverse states um, there is. And we have a huge um, organized labor community. About fourteen percent of our workers are in labor unions, and then we have military military families. So we we represent America in our state, and we've come together as that Nevada family and that person that gets the nomination has to meet the needs and represent our state instead of us representing their platform, if that makes sense.
0: It does. It does. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Thank you so much for your insights. It's been really, really helpful. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Because we keep things honorable, No tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.